0: Welcome to For the Record, where we go on the record with today's leading influencers and experts to discuss the latest trends in legal innovation and the business of law. I'm your host, Erin Harrison, and today we're joined by Sarah Schaff, the CEO of Headnote. Today, we'll hear what Sarah's been up to since the company was acquired just about six months ago. Sarah will also share some of the lessons she's learned in building a startup while also building a family and offer some advice for other young entrepreneurs in the legal tech space a sector which is largely dominated by white males. So, Sarah, welcome to For the Record.
1: Thanks, Erin. So great to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining. I know how busy your
1: schedule is. (laughs) Um, Feels like it never stops. That's especially true these days.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, Sarah, before we jump into questions, um, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about your background and what led you to start Headnote?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am an attorney, um, you know, by by training and, and practiced, um, no longer practice today, but um, practiced and private practice was a litigator uh, for years prior to going in-house at Google. Uh, I live out in the Bay Area and left Google to found Headnote um, because I'd seen an issue over and over and over again, no matter where I worked, no matter what kind of firm, what size firm, what kind of legal department, um, there was always an issue around getting paid and paying other people as, as an attorney, um, in part due to the compliance and regulatory issues around our, our payment rules. Um, and I grew up the child of two attorneys, both of whom started their own firms, and I knew how hard um, slow payment times were on small firms. And so I wanted to make a really accessible, beautiful, modern products in the lives of lawyers and law firms everywhere, regardless of size, um, and for me and, and based on my experience, getting paid and making that easier and, and removing friction was, was the, the best way that we could improve the lives of lawyers, uh, everywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. And actually, why don't you tell our listeners too just a little bit about, um, Headnote, uh, as far as the technology and how it works.
1: Yeah, so Headnote is a legal industry compliant payments platform. It's um, like Venmo uh, or PayPal, but made specifically for lawyers. So um, unlike some of the other um, systems that are on the market, you don't actually – um, need to use any particular um, LPM or any particular technology to use HeadNote. You can use it with a totally offline system. You can use it uh, in a compatibility with almost any LPM or any operating system and essentially allows you to really streamline the way you get paid, but also how you think about your accounts receivable process. It automates the follow up process, um, the tracking gives you real time updates. Um automates a lot of the internal processes that a larger AR or billing department would do. If you were at a larger firm or if you're a smaller firm, you probably don't have uh, that that uh, department or personnel devoted to that. So it it does all of the things that the people in your AR department would do for you uh, automatically.
0: And Sarah, I mean, I think you know this better than, than most that there's still so few women in the legal tech space in particular. And I know that Headnote had... A pretty impressive board of advisors and you guys were also vc funded before selling to paradigm uh, formerly asg last year so just curious what the experience was like um for you just both in terms of getting funding as a legal tech provider in silicon valley you know was it difficult to secure funding as a woman entrepreneur
1: uh, you know, it's so interesting. I think about this a lot now that I'm kind of at a different crossroads in my, you know, entrepreneurial journey. Kind of like, how did I get here? And like, when I look back on it, the number one thing that stands out is this idea of, first of all, I I had a lot of amazing women that did help me um, get here, but also had some really amazing, you know, male allies that are like you know major feminists uh, and are trying really hard to to shift the dynamic in the VC and the technology space to make it um, more equal uh, between men and women and so for me it it is this series of of little events that you know seem like nothing at the time and end up being these pivotal moments um, that was you know, Women and men kind of going out of their way um, to, to help. And I think part of it comes from, frankly, as an entrepreneur, never being afraid to ask for help or ask for an intro. Like I was very forthcoming and in, in trying to get very smart, important, successful people to teach me. And a lot of them had other people help them. And so they wanted to pay it forward. And so we started out, you know, in the Valley. I think that frankly is helpful or at least prior to COVID, it seemed like it was a really helpful thing to be to be here to get venture funding. I think that's shifting a lot given the pandemic um, in the past year. Uh, but it was something that, came about and I got really lucky, frankly. For everybody that I know out here, there's a lot of hard work and a lot of smart people and a lot of luck. I ended up having our lead investor for our seed round be a really fantastic well-known firm in the Valley called SoftTech. They changed their name to Uncourt Capital um, to a year or two ago, uh, but has been around for for decades. And the partner that actually led my seed round was a woman uh, named Stephanie Palmieri, who's still a great friend of mine. And so I had this really weird experience, really cool experience of actually getting to be a female entrepreneur, a female CEO, and have a female board member be kind of my closest uh, board member that I worked with. Um, and so in that way, I think, again, that was kind of luck and also women wanting to invest in other female companies and and just the energy and, and charisma that the, the two of us had together, uh, but probably different than a lot of other females in the Valley. And
0: I'd like to get real for a minute here, Sarah, with you. Uh, not that we, not that you've not been real, but I think because it's hard to be a working mom, and some people don't really like that term because motherhood, in and of itself, is a full time job, um, as we both know. But as a, as a mom and a female leader of a startup, what were some of the specific challenges that you encountered? Um, and then, just on the flip side, you know, how is it more rewarding in some ways?
1: Yeah, I mean that that is really tough. I think all of us know, and frankly, you know working dads too, especially again with the pandemic, it's like shifted everything Mm -hmm. on its head and just being a parent right now, uh, especially a working parent seems really difficult. And actually not especially a working parent. If I was home with my kids all day and couldn't work, um, I think that would maybe be harder for me personally. So for the parents that are, you know, the parents that work in the home, like hats off. I, I think that's the hardest job there is. Um, but yeah, it was really difficult. And frankly, I did have a couple uncomfortable interactions when I was raising our first kind of uh, big round around kind of like, what were my family planning, you know, plans. I had one child at that mm-hmm. point who was You know, a year and a half, two years old. And there were questions around, like, was I going to, you know, was I planning on having another child? Uh, Which, of course, they would never ask my male counterparts. Right. Um, I think it was also kind of doubly hard because my husband Thornton is one of my co founders at HeadNote. And so investors were making a decision to not only invest in like a female CEO that's like of the, age when you have kids or think about having a family, but also our husband is also, you know, a co-founder of the business. So it really was this idea of like putting all your eggs in one basket, I'm sure from their perspective mm-hmm. uh, and tr- trying to assess that risk factor. Um, that said, you know, we raised our our first round and uh, venture backed round, And um, within a couple of months I did get pregnant. And so, you know, I felt frankly, really, um, uncomfortable around having that conversation. It was some very strange feelings of like guilt, which then I felt even more guilty to like my unborn child and my family Mm -hmm. that I was having those feelings of guilt. But there is this um, kind of, it's a kind of hard topic it felt like to talk about and to be really open and honest about. Um, And then the baby, you know, once I was really pregnant and real life situations kind of really came into play, we had a board meeting scheduled, um the day that we i had my daughter and and she came early and we had to move that board meeting back obviously and then you know 2 days later thornton you know, started filling in as interim CEO in the, uh, while I was on leave, if, if we can even really call it that. And he had to, to run that board meeting, you know, 48 hours after, after having the baby and, and being next to me and taking care of the baby. So for sure, it put a lot of added pressure on our family. Um, I think we kind of knew that's what we signed up for. Uh, but mm-hmm. I would love, you know, to work with male and female um, colleagues in the Valley to try to shift that, dynamic and that kind of um, just that, that feeling that you have as both a male or a female entrepreneur around having kids. Because I know men who have the same feeling that are saying, you know, we give maternity and paternity leave, you know, 12 weeks or, or whatever it is, but they're not comfortable taking it themselves as a father because they don't know what's going to say about their work ethic. And I think as a culture and a society in general, we need to work really hard to, to remove some of that stigma.
0: Yeah, exactly, and I, I think the more we talk about it, uh, the more we lessen that stigma associated with working moms and working parents, and I and I'm hopeful. I think um, you've probably seen the same that maybe COVID has helped accelerate uh, some of the acceptance around that. And you're really such a great example of uh, of what can be accomplished. I mean, you were you were doing a lot at one time, um, so I really commend you for being so ambitious. So, so Sarah, Headnote was acquired by Paradigm, which uh, is formerly known as ASG, just about six months ago, September of 2020. So really in the throes of the pandemic. So curious what it was like for you um, and for the company going through the acquisition process and how the pandemic may have played a role in the acquisition.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard to say. I think we Again, it's like, I don't want to ever underscore the amount of hard work that me and my team, frankly, put into getting Headnote where it is today and creating the technology we made because it was a lot of work and frankly, a you know, risky, it's, it's a high risk exposure business, uh, a payments business. So it's not like it was easy to do. It was really hard um, and we worked really hard at it and we tried to make really smart decisions, but also there was like luck that, that factored into it. So I think even prior to the pandemic, what we had seen was that there was a lot of non-legal specific companies who had figured out that if you added payments, into your offering, right? If you're a SaaS company and you start offering payments, for instance, like a mind body, and then it's not just the way that a yoga studio, you know, books its um, classes and runs its business. It's also the way that they're gonna get paid for those classes. It goes together really well. Adding payments into a SaaS platform can actually result in a Really insane, kind of multiple on on the the market size, on the valuation of the company, and so in a way we saw that happening. We saw the consolidation happening in legal prior to the pandemic, anyways. You know, um, big rounds getting poured into companies or companies starting to get bought by private equity, and so we had already seen some signals that. Uh, payments was kind of a very hot space uh, before the pandemic hit, and so we were, you know, already in the midst of raising our our next round at that time, and um, it just so happened the pandemic really did speed up um, the kind of desire. To have payments you know, embedded and integrated and all in one within these systems. Um, so I think again, it's like we had gotten lucky that the market was already looking at payments as this really cool value add, that all of a sudden it made a lot of sense for, for all of these SaaS companies to start owning that functionality themselves instead of using a third-party vendor and, and paying, you know, the major- the majority of their of their margin, right? To this other company. People were already saying, we want to bring this in-house. COVID really helped that kind of acceleration and that forced adaptation. Lawyers, law firms, SaaS companies that didn't quite fully understand the value of touchless payments were kind of forced to realize that this was something that was not uh, nice to have. It was a must have. And that certainly helped, you know, headnotes technology um, be very desirable uh, within the legal industry and, and, and outside of it uh, at the right time.
0: And how about adoption um, since the pandemic, since the acquisition? I mean, obviously, this technology is even more relevant in some ways now. Um, And by the way, Headnote claims to help law firms reduce payment processing fees by 35% and get paid 70% faster than the industry average of 94 days, which is pretty amazing. Um, So just curious, how, how has adoption changed?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we all know that, you know, selling to to lawyers and law firms, making technology that's really usable for lawyers and law firms is really hard. And we have a reputation of being an industry that doesn't have a lot of early adopters or first movers on the tech side. And so again, as a technologist, as somebody who's, I'm a very much a product, you know, focused founder. Um, I, I love product. And so, and I use a lot of products as a consumer, you know, We the hardest thing for you to overcome as a product founder or or somebody who's making a new product or technologist is existing behavior, right? Like I'd I'd much rather have a a, a, a well-funded incumbent competitor than I would have human behavior that we have to change. It's very difficult to get people to change what they're currently doing if it's an old habit. And so that was really what we were up against in some ways in the legal industry. We had um, lawyers and law firms that were really used to doing it one way, getting paid via check, not fully understanding the rules around online payment ac- payment acceptance, but knowing it was like kind of amorphous and felt scary to them. Um, and what, again, the pandemic did was this forced adaptation where it went from, yeah, we'll think about it, you know, like we'll, ha- we'll bring it up at the next management meeting and then maybe we'll like kick the can to the next one. Um, to, like, how quickly can we sign up? Um, You know, how long does it take to get through the approval process and start, you know, getting paid with the system? So it was one of those things where the things that we knew that we'd been saying, we'd been seeing happening slowly in the industry for the past, you know, five years, all of a sudden, within, you know, five weeks, we saw this massive um, adjustment to kind of get the the legal industry kind of more on track with where some other industries are and in, in, as far as adapting adapting to and adopting this kind of financial technology.
0: Yeah, sounds like a pretty massive shift there. Yeah. So I read something interesting that I wanted to share because I think it relates to uh, some of the topics that we've been addressing as far as diversity and equity and inclusion, which has really become front and center recently. And here's, here's the, the data point. Out of a survey of uh, law firms in the U.S., nearly three-fourths or 75% of law firms have launched new programs to address racial injustice after the BLM demonstrations and the death of George Floyd last year. Um, so my question is kind of twofold. One, you know, do you think investors look at diversity when they're evaluating whether to invest in legal tech? Uh, especially, you know, looking at the landscape. Um, and I know that your leadership team is very dominant as far as women being at the top. Uh, so we'd just love to hear your perspective on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a great question. and something we need to be, frankly, just talking about more. Um, you know, I am really proud to work for a company that has a female CEO where half of the leadership team is Women over half of our leadership team are, are females, and um, you know we and, and we're a very diverse um, a diverse group of people, our backgrounds and, and and everything about us, and we strive for that. We really want to have the difference, uh, the different backgrounds, the different kinds of opinions. But and it's something that we make a very conscious effort to to try to live by those values and how we look at our team and how we look at the different kinds of policies we roll out you know how do we be as inclusive as we possibly can and make space for for everybody and for all of these different opinions because we really believe that that makes a better culture a better workplace and a better product for for all of our users you know i think that you know, there are certain types of diversity that have been, you know, there's very, very popular in the Valley for, for a long time, right? There are certain types of founders that kind of fit the mold that that certain investors are looking for. For sure, that does not, at least in my opinion, and I'm trying to think, generally include females of those kinds of backgrounds and diversity, right? So, like, in a way, I think there is there is definitely a problem of inequity in venture amongst diversity as far as background, um, and race and culture and and everything r- related to to that and there's just an even an equal or frankly even bigger disparity in regard to female um, into mm-hmm. female funding female entrepreneurship and what we're seeing is even in the in the pandemic over the past year the funding that's been going to females during the pandemic well, well let me take a step back. The, the venture community has been very active over the past year even though a lot of us have been like slowed down in our lives right in and stuck on zoom like the investors are, are the investors know that when there's this kind of big inflection point in the world that's when some of the best technology ends up getting created right the 2008 the recession was when we got really cool companies like airbnb and it this kind of this environment is very fertile ground for, for new innovation. And so the investors, Absolutely. so like they're excited, right? They're like, okay, this is, we're going to see, we got to get in on as much as we can. So the past year, investors have actually been really giving out a lot of capital, right? We've had some like record numbers as far as like investments made. What we're seeing, unfortunately, is that the investments made in female led companies or companies with female founders, even if we don't even say female leadership, right? Female co-founders has dropped significantly and that's super disappointing. And and I don't know why. And um, I'm sure there's a variety of reasons and, and hypotheses that people are exploring, but you know this is something we need to to work harder at especially on the on the female front in my opinion um as far as diversity yeah i do think it's something that investors are looking at they're looking at it more than they ever did hopefully they're looking at it for the right reasons you know not just to to say that we did this or we hit some kind of um, some kind of quota that we're trying to hit as a fund, right? Like, we hope mm-hmm. it's because they're just frankly casting a net where they're getting more diverse people and, um, you know, the, the ideas are, are kind of rising to the top. Um, but I, I definitely think it's something that investors are thinking more and more about. How do we be a, a VC? How do we be a fund that lives by the things that we believe in? Meaning, how do we find ways to invest in maybe underrepresented founders? And I think that. That's something that, unfortunately, we have to keep really proactively working at. Even over the past year, we're seeing that like we get distracted and the numbers drop. Um, yeah. And frankly, it makes me angry—not at anyone in particular, just like just the the fact that that's how it is. You know, as as a as a woman, but it's also heartening. yeah. And I have a daughter. You know, I have a, a she's almost three, and mm-hmm. and I have a son who's six, and. I do think like, you know, never a really supportive husband who's was raised by a single mom and two older sisters, you know, like I, we need these, we need people to be thinking about, you know, really thinking about women as equals and, and the men, it starts with the men too, right? Like we need male allies and, and raising boys that don't think that there's any difference between the boys and the girls and what they can do and making sure we're raising kids with that kind of mentality. Um, because, yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing that if you think too much about it as a woman, it just kind of gets you really, really angry.
0: Yep. Uh, it's definitely can be, be disheartening. But um, mm-hmm. the things that you guys are doing, um, I think you're kind of, you know, breaking, breaking the mold. And you're really such a great role model for women in our industry. So um, before we wrap up, Sarah, any words of wisdom for other young, young entrepreneurs out there, uh, you know, women and men?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think like the best advice or one of the things that I've learned more than anything else is that don't be afraid to ask, like just, you know, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease in so many ways. And so there are a lot, like I said, there's a lot of smart, hardworking people. There's always at least a little bit of luck that goes into to success in a lot of ways. Um, you know, don't be afraid to shoot for the stars. Find, you know, that CEO of the company you're interested in on LinkedIn and send them a message. Ask them if they'll have a virtual coffee, you know, if you can can pick their brain on something. You know, maybe you do that, you know, 100 to 100 people and you don't hear back from 98 of them. But like, I bet you're going to hear back from a few that said, you know, somebody help me and I want to help you. So like those cold emails, cold calls, um, finding ways to get the intros and just never being afraid to ask for what you need. I think is really, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit, that kind of, you just kind of you got to keep moving forward. You got to keep finding a way, find a way to yes, find a way to make it work, keep being scrappy and, and just don't be afraid to, to ask, you know, you never know what someone's going to say.
0: It's great advice. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, that's all we have time for today, but I look forward to catching up again soon. And um, thanks to Sarah and to our listeners for joining us. Thank you, Erin. Thanks for listening to this episode of For the Record. You can listen to more episodes of For the Record wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or go to platform.com forward slash For the Record. Platform helps established leaders and emerging growth companies articulate how cutting edge technologies and services are reshaping and reinventing the world we live in. Until next time, this is Aaron Harrison.